Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 22. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Father Francis Sullivan, S.J. During a recent visit to Boston, I had the opportunity to speak with him, and we had a very wonderful, very wide-ranging conversation. It's one of our longer episodes. Uh, We talk in this episode about the role that obedience had in his coming to study theology, the role his provincial played in that. We talk about his time as dean of the theology faculty at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome during the Second Vatican Council. And we also talk about his engagement with the Catholic Charismatic Renewal in Rome. Father Sullivan also tells us why his American students nicknamed him Arizona and why Boston would be a bad place for an ecumenical council. As always, you can leave us feedback on the blog or on iTunes. And thank you very, very much for listening. So we're here today for the Daily Theology Podcast with Father Francis Sullivan, formerly of the Gregorian University in Rome and then Boston College. Father Sullivan, thank you so much for being here. To, to start off with, the, the first question we like to ask and, and really talk about is, how is it that you came to be a theologian? Well, I'm a Jesuit, and um, you might say that the initiative for one's eventual career is uh, sometimes the initiative of the, the individual Jesuit who proposes to the superior, say his provincial superior, what he feels he'd like to want to do. And in other cases, it's an, it's, it comes, can come also directly from the provincial <laughs> to the individual. And uh, in my case, it was the second case. <laughs> that uh, I, at, at the time, I was, uh, as, you, as many know, Jesuits interrupt their course of studies between philosophy and theology. And I did both philosophy and theology here where I'm giving this talk mm-hmm. in what was Weston College, our house of studies. In any case, we do three years of philosophy and then break that up, usually for two or three years of teaching, mostly high school. And actually, it was when I was teaching high school, freshman high school, uh, Latin and English and algebra, as a matter of fact, down in, uh, actually, in Bridgeport, Connecticut at the time, which was a, an outhouse in a way, a, a, a <laughs> subsidiary to Fairfield uh, prep, prep School mm. in Fairfield. In any case, it's normal for the provincial to come to visit each Jesuit in his province once a year. And when I was uh, teaching down there, I had finished two, t- two years of teaching and expected to do a third year of teaching, which was normal, before going back to do theology. A provincial told me that before coming, coming down there where I was, he had visited, uh, made his usually visitation to Western College, which was our house of studies. And he said, talking to the faculty of theology up there, he said they had told me that if possible, I could, or they would like me to, as provincial, to sort of look ahead for a need which they felt in their faculty at at Western Theology Faculty for someone who could teach the courses needed in patristic theology. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, they also suggested your name as someone who might possibly be looked on because of my background in classics, because I'd had a pretty good background in classics by that time. And they said, uh, so they actually made a suggestion to me about what to do now, that rather than do a second year of 
of uh, teaching, our third year of teaching, I mean, we would like you to go to, uh, to Fordham University and enlist there for a graduate course in, um, in classics. But just now we know that there is a man in the classics department who is a patristic scholar. So we want you to take whatever courses he takes, mm -hmm. he gives, with a view to your eventually, eventually coming back when you finish your eventually your studies, to come back to teach patristics at Western College. Okay. So that was the initiative for putting me into theology. Mm -hmm. When at that point I had no thoughts of doing that at all. Mm -hmm. but totally the initiative from the provincial, at the suggestion of the faculty people up here. Mm -hmm. But they sort of suggested my name for a purpose that they had in You were nominated. Yeah. On the, back of, on the basis of my classics mm -hmm. studies and so on. What so was, in any case... What yeah. was it that want, led you to want to be a Jesuit to begin with? Uh, well, uh, it, I suppose basically for several reasons. One was because I had a Jesuit uncle. Mm. All right. <laughs> and of course I got to know him through my family relations. And secondly, I... I did four years at Boston College High School uh, mm -hmm. under the Jesuits, and I admired them, the ones that taught me, okay. especially the, the one I had in senior year, perhaps I most admired. So the influence certainly was obviously okay. there, that I, that I was attracted to their life and their work and the kind of people they were. Mm -hmm. So it was, an, I think, an attraction to the people that I got to know at BCI. Mm -hmm. So that led me into the Jesuit order. Then, of course, then I said the initiative, as far as my getting into theology, came from the faculty here, really, because they sort of gave my name, because I'd been here, of course, as a student, to the provincial as someone whom they might look upon as coming back eventually to do patristics in their faculty. So that's how, in a sense, I got into theology. Because from that point on, Having done a year, uh, two years rather, no, a year and a half, I guess it was, that took me to get a master's degree that they wanted me to get mm -hmm. at that point. And I took the courses that were given by this man who was a patristic scholar, Arbesman his name was, and also other courses in the, in the, to get my degree. So when I came back here to Weston for four years of theology, I had in mind that what they wanted me to do was patristics. Mm -hmm. So naturally, I, when I had uh, some time extra from the required courses, I would look at something that might get, you know, be in that indirect in that direction. But I had uh, in my mind that I was destined eventually to come back and teach theology here at Western. Okay. So that was in the back of my mind. So when I uh, for my licentiate in theology, which is the degree we would get after four years here of theology, for my licentiate, I had to do a a serious, not a doctoral dissertation, but a licentiate dissertation, you mm -hmm. might say, at a level level, but it has to be a kind serious, of like the, the master's serious level, piece of right? work. Yeah. Okay. And uh, naturally, I was looking for a topic for that, and I happened to read something that got me interested in a, an early uh, bishop um, who actually had the distinction of having been condemned as a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> After he had been dead for a hundred years or something, <laughs> after he was dead, they condemned him by heresy. Well, I got interested in his case. <laughs> Certainly, that was an odd case. His name was Theodore 
uh, a bishop of a, a town in Asia Minor called Mops Westium, not far from where St. Paul came from in Tarsus. Anyway, he was a bishop in the church, died uh, in full communion with the church, but he, uh, he'd, been a, he'd been working on the problem that had not yet been really solved about how Christ could be both uh, divine and human in the same person. Sure. And he was struggling with that problem and making a real effort to, to find a reasonable solution. But eventually his solution was thrown out. <laughs> so then they condemned him as a heretic. <laughs> Which made the question interesting. Yeah. So I wrote up my uh, licentiate paper, and uh, Father Donnelly, who was the prof- my, uh, my guide here, when I, when I turned it in, he said, uh, I think you should send this on to theological studies. Hmm. He bowled me over, I wouldn't think of it. <laughs> Sending anything to be published. But actually, he, he persuaded me to do it, and they published it. <laughs> so I got an article into theological studies as a scholastic. Wow. I'm still studying that. Anyway, so that was my beginning in uh, publishing, as well, you might say, <laughs> serious theological publications. So then, uh, after, naturally, after uh, I did my uh, finished theology then, I was ordained, but then I had a year of what we call tertianship, you may have mm-hmm. heard of, so, sort of return to spiritual uh, considerations in our life. But at that point, then uh, the provincial said, now you go to Rome, but we need you to come back here at Weston. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I don't know whether he had been told by the provincial that they had thought of me for patristics, but he said, what we need you for is fundamental theology. Mm. You know, the typical change of, you know, the, the, pr- the tradition doesn't get carried on as what I was supposed to do, and not now what they want me to do. But in any case, he said, I want you to go to Rome and work for a doctorate in fundamental theology. If, if I may and, ask, when, in, at least in your case, when, when this shift happened, hmm. you know, what what kind of reaction do you have? Is it just, is it just straight well, you know, say, well, acceptance? Because I know the vow of obedience is part of it. But, well, it's, obviously it's part of obedience, of course. But is, yeah. is there a part of you that's just sort of like, I put all this work into patristics, why am I like shifting trajectories? Or? Well, I didn't do all that work after all. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wrote one article. Theological studies, that's a... Well, I had, I had to write a, a, a dissertation for my licentiate anyway. Yeah. It's just definitely what I wrote it about. <laughs> So I went to Rome, obviously, as he wanted me to do. And when I got there to study at the Gregorian, because that's where we do our mm-hmm. doctoral studies, I was living in a residence for the doctoral students and uh, going to the Gregorian for my classes, of course. So uh, fundamental theology in those days included both what you might call, what they would call, uh, well, the courses, uh, the uh, material on revelation and tradition of revelation, mm-hmm. that whole question. That's one side of it, and that's what they wanted me for here. Mm-hmm. The other side of fundamental was ecclesiology, okay. all about the church. And I knew they didn't want me for ecclesiology because they had an excellent professor here for ecclesiology. Sure. But the reason they wanted me to study the fundamental was for the other side, because the man doing that was getting old and they'd have to replace him. Mm-hmm. So I, but in any case, I knew that's what they wanted me for, not for ecclesiology, but for the other side. But I, in general, signed up for fundamental theology. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. 
So then I did my courses and uh, did, did my dissertation and so on, and uh, got my degree. And then, when at the time I got my degree, on the basis of, of my doctoral dissertation, actually from my dissertation, I went back to my old friend Theodore Mopsmith, because <laughs> I knew something about him. <laughs> and I think it was probably because I had a head start, because I'd already done the thing. Mm-hmm. In a way, I just built it into a doctoral dissertation. I may have gotten a better grade than usual for <laughs> because the fact is when I finished my degree uh, in fundamental theology at the Gregorian just at that point they needed somebody to fill in or to at least to, to be honest and ready to help with the course on ecclesiology because the man who had been teaching ecclesiology was pretty close to retirement and was not well. Mm. They needed somebody pretty much right away for ecclesiology. Okay. I had not been really studying ecclesiology because I, I knew they didn't want me <laughs> here. But I was signed up for fundamental theology, which includes... Yeah. So actually, I had taken courses in ecclesiology because it's part of fundamental. Sure. It just wasn't what you had expected. And anyway, so that's how I ended up teaching at the Gregorian University instead of coming back here because they needed somebody immediately at the Gregorium, who could fill in, uh, who could help out and then replace a man teaching ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. So all of that was just simply the situation that led into how I ended up at the Gregorium teaching ecclesiology. And once I got settled there and, um, you know, was sort of approved by the experience, I just simply stayed on there teaching as I eventually ended up. 36 years of mm-hmm. teaching there. And it involved, uh, well, among other things, my uh, having been uh, appointed, not elected by the faculty, but appointed to be the dean of the faculty, mm-hmm. just of that faculty, not of the whole university, but just sure. each the faculty, faculty. The dean. I was the dean of the faculty from 62 to 70, and precisely the years of the Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. So that all during the Vatican Council, I was both full-time teacher and dean, and really didn't have much time to pay attention to the council. <laughs> and really, it's fact, I was just too busy. Hmm. I could have, if I hadn't been so busy, I could have gotten probably somehow a ticket to get in and actually attend one of the sessions. But you didn't have time to do I that. Knew, I, I just didn't have time to, I was too busy doing everything. I was, being dean and teaching at the same time. So I could only watch what's, what was going on at the council sort of at a, at a kind of distance mm-hmm. because I just couldn't give my mind with it sufficiently to, to pay. The only thing that did come out of it was the Catholic bishops who were attending the council. Once in a great while, they would gather at the North American College as a group. Mm-hmm. If there was some question, they felt they needed someone to tell them more about. And lo and behold, I got a request from the bishops to tell them something about a, a paragraph that was coming up in the council about what they were calling charisms of the faithful. Mm-hmm. And um, several of the cardinals, some of the more prominent cardinals, says there's no such thing <laughs> as charisms of the ordinary faithful. He thought charisms were things that people who were on the way to beatification or something, mm. you know, special stuff yeah. like that. 
not what you might call gifts for service in the church, which was what, uh, among other things, uh, uh, De Lubeck was saying, that, and others like him, mm. that there, and Congar, that there are charisms of the ordinary faithful, and so on. So anyway, the, bishop, the Catholic bishops did ask me to talk to them, and that's why I, I, I got hold of the, I wouldn't have had it otherwise, of the actual text that they were using, in which it had, which has this paragraph on the, the draft, you know, the draft of what they were going to say on the charisms of the faithful. And uh, oh, also in, in Rome, there was a bishop who had been one of my superiors during my course, mm. who was now the bishop of Kingston, Jamaica. We, had, uh, we worked down there in Jamaica. So he was the Jesuit from New England, bishop of Jamaica, uh, Kingston, Jamaica, present at the council as a council member. And he had told me that if I ever had any, any uh, thoughts about anything going on at the council that might come to my attention, and I could, he said, if you have any thoughts you'd like me to, like me to have that I might be able to use mm. to make an intervention of some kind, well, you know, hand it on to me. That was Bishop McElhaney, his name was. In any case, after I had given the talk to the bishops, having had the draft text in my hands, which I wouldn't otherwise have had, I just decided that I could write a better paragraph than that myself. <laughs> so that's what I would, did, and I gave it to Bishop McElhaney. Would you say that was one of your charisms? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it was, it was uh, boldness. Yes, I, mm -hmm. boldness. Anyway, that's what I did. I gave my, my uh, alternate text, my personal text, on the question of charisms to uh, Bishop McElhaney, and uh, eventually from the actor, you know, the final documents that tell you what, what they did with all these documents. Mm -hmm. uh, I did, I did, I can prove, you know, somewhere from the documents that uh, what I gave Bishop McElhaney was actually used in the paragraph that eventually came out. Mm -hmm. I didn't write the whole thing, but it, sure. was, it was used. Part of paragraph 12. It, was, it, 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 did, it did somewhat modify the text. That's wonderful. Modify it. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, probably so, a greater contribution so than I'll ever make. That's my to, uh, little contribution to <laughs> to the documents of Vatican II. Would you and, would you connect the the idea that there are charisms of the faithful to and the resistance to that idea that some had? Hmm. Is, is that kind of parallel to the idea of the the universal call to holiness and the sense that some have that holiness is only reserved for a set few? So it's, it's similar. That's a similar okay. thing. I sure similar idea. But charism doesn't mean, to have a charism actually doesn't mean you're, you become holy mm -hmm. by having the charism. You might become holy by using it well, mm -hmm. but not by having it. Right, right, right. Charisms don't make you holy, mm -hmm. but they, they equip you for some um, service. Yeah. And if you, act, if you actuate it, 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 you can grow in holiness. But so so it, it, you might say it's sort of a, a particular way in which one might live yeah. that called a holiness. It's, it's kind of okay. a gift for service. Okay. And if you use the gift well, then uh, you can go, go in holiness. Of okay. That. But it's a gift to serve the church somehow. Mm -hmm. And if you accept it and use it, then you can go in holiness. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the fact is that I ended up teaching ecclesiology because that's what they needed at the time mm -hmm. at the Gregorian. It was a surprise to me when I learned out, learned because the last I had heard from my provincial back in, here in New England, 
that I was to uh, show up here at Weston on the 15th of August to pronounce my final vows and begin teaching here. <laughs> that was the last I had heard from him. Mm -hmm. And then I got, <laughs> and I was on my way home <laughs> to do that. <laughs> did you, I mean, did you, I know you're from the Boston area. Yes. Did, is, and I, I know that the sort of initial plan was that you would come back here. I was teach that, here, yeah. Was that also what you wanted? Were you, were you happy to At be At that time, it Rome was or? what I would have preferred, yeah. Okay. Because, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I was on my way in a sense that I had finished my doctorate and I had until I finished my doctorate by the end of June and I, my next commitment, as the provincial said, was I should show up here at Weston by the middle of August. So I had July and August, you know, most June, July mm -hmm. uh, at my disposal in a way. So I figured I could make a visit with my relatives in Ireland. You've seen my coat of arms on my door. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to visit my relatives in Ireland. On my way home, I arranged to make my eight-day retreat, which I had to make prior to pronouncing final vows, in a house in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down and wrote to the provincial when I found out that I was supposed to go back and teach here <laughs> in Rome. I wrote to the provincial and I said, I'm going to make my retreat at Clongo's Wood in Ireland on such and such days, and if you wished, you could write me to there and tell me what I should do now. <laughs> 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 because should I come, keep coming home? Mm -hmm. Should I go back to Rome? What am I going to, and what does this Rome thing mean? <laughs> anyway, because what I had earned was, all I knew was that I was supposed to go back to Rome. Mm -hmm. Didn't say what I was supposed to do there. <laughs> so he naturally he wrote to me and I got the letter when I was in we were making my retreat in Ireland telling me that he had gotten an urgent request for my services at the Gregorian University mm. and it was to teach ecclesiology which they needed there on the other hand he said as far as coming home now so I'd already made my travel plans I was on a ship from Ireland to New York mm -hmm. He said, you might as well continue your plans to come home now and make your uh, final vows as planned in August and then go back in time for the year, for the year fall, sesame, fall mm -hmm. semester. So that, that meant I just continued my trip as mm -hmm. I am. And was it, was it here that you took your final vows or was that yeah, your ordination? Yes. Here? Okay. I got back here, did my final vows here in, as planned in August 15th right here in this chapel. And then eventually got back to Rome in time for... No, actually, the fact is, that summer we uh, found out, we were told that my father had lung cancer mm. and wouldn't live beyond Christmas. Wow. So I wrote to the rector at the Gregorian and told him that, that my father had, had come down with cancer that was terminal and would probably mean he wouldn't live beyond Christmas. So I said to my... I, I wrote to him, I said, do you need me in this first <coughs> semester, beginning in October, this year, or would it be possible for me to put off my, my coming to Rome until the spring semester so that I could be home with my mother when my father dies? Mm -hmm. And he said yes. Mm -hmm. So that meant I actually did stay home for that fall semester and uh, lived here and did whatever studies I could because I had to study up what mm -hmm. I was going to teach. 
but I, it was a good place to study anyway. Yeah. So I came back and lived here and used the library and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And eventually I did go back and start teaching when, because the man who was still teaching the matter was still teaching. He would. Sure. So for a couple of years we, we divided the course and then I took the whole course over. Mm -hmm. And I continued to do that. And then eventually, in the middle of all of that, that year that the council was going on, I was appointed to, to be dean of the faculty and did all that. Yeah. So two questions I might kind of follow from that is, even though cl clearly you were, you, you were very busy during the, the council and were sort of at, at, you know, at arm's length from it, you weren't you know, particularly able to be engaged with it. Mm. On the other hand, though, you're also... You're, you start teaching ecclesiology in the, the mid to late 50s at the Gregorian, and obviously ecclesiology is profoundly impacted by Lumen Gentium, oh, yeah. the Spes, and, and yeah. other, other documents. So I, I, one thing I'm curious about is how your own teaching and research on ecclesiology would be changed by that. Yeah, well, I can tell you that uh, because uh, I began teaching in, uh, what was it, must have been 53 or something, sometime in the 50s anyway. I began teaching uh, ecclesiology at the Greg. And um, if it, once you started teaching a course, a major course at the Gregorian, it was sort of expected that first you would prepare notes for the students to use, to mm -hmm. study with, and then eventually turn that into a Latin manual. Mm. We were still teaching in Latin mm -hmm. in those days. So that in the years before uh, I became dean, I did have the time to work on uh, first a manual, sort of thing they would put together and mm -hmm. make available. And then uh, put that into a real volume, which was intended to be a first volume of a two-volume work, Latin work, on the church. So my first volume did get published in 1962. <laughs> yeah, 62. Uh, just about the time the council opened. <laughs> and of course it was uh, it was a Latin manual. And we were expected to produce these Latin manuals because it was a major source of income for us, sure. for the university, which had very few stable courses, mm -hmm. sources of income. We didn't really charge a decent tuition mm -hmm. as to, to support the place. Of course, okay. So that uh, they did expect us to, to write a manual and I had planned a two-volume manual, in Latin, of course, and I managed to get the first volume printed, published, by 62. Then I was uh, named to be dean, mm. and then the council took mm -hmm. over, came on. And uh, for the time that I was dean, teaching and, and running the show, I had no time to write a second volume, uh, which was intended, a second volume. Mm -hmm. So... And then by the, by the, when the council finished, we were no longer teaching in Latin. Mm. The council had pretty much, or at least not the council itself, but the, the uh, congregation in charge of higher studies, universities and mm -hmm. seminaries like ours, they had uh, decreed that we were no longer obliged to teach in Latin. Okay. So that uh, the result of the matter was that I had a first volume of a pro projected two-volume De Ecclesia in Latin, of which only the first volume was ever published. Mm -hmm. Because when they said we weren't obliged to teach in Latin anymore, 
I saw, saw no point in publishing a Latin manual, <laughs> second volume. So I began teaching, uh, I, I continued to teach, of course, and, but I was, we were no longer obliged to teach in Latin. Mm. But I was made being a dean, and, and I had to figure out, we had to figure out together what languages we would use. Yeah. And we came to a pretty good solution, I think, that between we have required courses that all the students have to take and elective courses where they can choose among mm -hmm. student courses. So we, I think, wisely decided that the required courses here were in Italy. They have to be able to converse with Italians. They're going to be here, well, students, I mean, mm -hmm. going to be here for four or five years anyway. They should be able to teach, to listen, learn. They're willing to learn Italian. Mm -hmm. They will be, and they are, and they were. Mm -hmm. So we said the required courses that everyone has to know the language for, because they, they all the required courses will be taught in Italian. Hmm. And but the elective courses, the professor can choose among five designated languages, mm -hmm. and the students can pick courses and languages that they can mm -hmm. follow. So it worked out fine. So did, in that case, did they continue to provide the notes for students to, to study from? Did that kind of tradition of the teaching remain, or? Did that go away Actually, with the... it would depend on the professor from that okay. point on, I think, to what extent they would provide notes. But in any case, uh, in my own case, what I wrote after, the, after that decision was made, everything I wrote from that point on was in, in English. <laughs> and, and of course, I would give elective courses in English. Mm -hmm. But I would still give required course to the, to the uh, upper level. Then we also divided it between the two levels, two cycles. The lower level is pretty much still required courses. The upper level is almost all elective. Mm -hmm. So that I gave, still continue to give required courses in Italian at the lower level, first three years, and then elective courses in English in the top two years. That was the way the course mm -hmm. divided. So that worked out, but I had no reason to uh, even think of writing a second volume in, in uh, my Latin. <laughs> Did, but did you consider continuing with the second volume, but doing it in English, or I wrote everything in English. But 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 did you but did you write the second? You didn't write the second volume of the. No, I never the, wrote the second volume. But what I did write would would in a sense be the material that would. You would have wanted to cover. Okay. What I would have covered in the second volume. Okay. Did the church document that came out in, in Vatican II? Did they? dramatically changed the kinds of arguments that you were making or would have made or did they, were, they have were, a big impact on how you were teaching ecclesiology? Oh yeah, there were many many points that were very good many points that, that the especially Lumen Gentium one has to keep in mind that's the current ecclesiology of the mm -hmm. church so you wanted what I taught what I wrote basically what I wrote after Vatican II about the church was based on Lumen Gentium mm -hmm. Based on the council. Yeah. So did, did the first volume feel somewhat obsolete or, or overturned? It or? was obsolete because it was written in Latin. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> the other, I guess, question I was wondering about with, with your experience at the Gregorian during Vatican II is, I mean, as dean, in, in what way did, what other ways did it change the school or change the faculty or, I mean, was it primarily the, you know, the language restructuring or? No. Oh, there were a good many, yes. Actually, I was dean at the time, after the council, when they 
again, the, con the Congregation for High Studies and, and seminaries and universities like ours, they laid down a number of very detailed directions as to the statutes that we were to now to draw up. Mm -hmm. Each faculty had to draw up statutes for itself. And uh, they're very detailed directions for it. Amazing how many details they went into. And I was dean at the time, so that uh, I was sort of in charge of, of the, and then they prescribed that the drawing up of these new statutes had to be done in a commission of professors plus students. Mm -hmm. And that was a question because there were fa members of our faculty who would not participate in any counts of a, any kind of a council where students' voices would be heard. <laughs> so that was a struggle. Because I was the dean and I had to get this thing working. <laughs> but it was a struggle actually to get things done given the fact that we had to involve students. Mm -hmm. And many, some of the professors just wouldn't, wouldn't do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we worked it out anyway somehow. But uh, among the things that I do compliment myself on, and I look back on as some contribution I made to our life there, was when I was looking at the draft that they gave us of the things that should go into the statutes. And um, I was simply reading the draft, and I came across a point that somewhere we should speak about the rights and duties of professors, mm. which found naturally enough. And I said to myself, well, it's obviously what, obvious what our duties are. <laughs> but uh, what rights do we have? What rights do professors at the Gregorian University have that would be, you know, rights that they could, they could have if they want them, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, the only thing I could think of that uni university professors back home usually would have a right to a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And they could have a sabbatical when they chose it, uh, you know, in, within limits. I said to myself, well, that's an idea. Why don't we think of something that could be a sabbatical that we could take advantage of and that would not too much put too much of a burden on the dean? Because <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were kind of a one-man administration, weren't you? you... Well, I, my, my successor would have to face this, too. Yeah. <laughs> I knew what the problem would be. Mm -hmm. Because if I were to follow the American system of giving people a whole either whole semester or whole year sabbatical as they choose because they could choose usually in most places mm -hmm. between a semester and a year. In any case either semester or year would mean that each of these professors is teaching a course that has to be, if required, has to be taught every year. Mm -hmm. If they're on sabbatical, I have to find another professor, or the dean does. Mm -hmm. That would be a very difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm to find somebody who's qualified to teach the course and teach it in either Italian or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, that can't, that, I can't do it that way. So I said, maybe the solution would be in, in giving them, uh, giving a sabbatical, maybe we could say every, not every seventh year, but every fourth year, you could have a semester sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And that would mean that you could give the required course in the semester you're here, and elective, you could not do. Mm -hmm. In other words, that's just that's just sabbatical. So you give your required course while you're here, and then you have a free semester. Mm -hmm. That worked out fine. Good. I took advantage of it myself. <laughs> Every fourth year. 
Every you were very happy with the system. Every you fourth up. year, I, I took <laughs> advantage of my my fourth year semester, which I actually I used to, to get some things written. Mm -hmm. Because what I did was I came back here and, and lived with our students who were then uh, the School of Theology, which had been here in Weston, had moved into Cambridge. Mm -hmm. It was School of Theology in Cambridge. And uh, they had the library in there, of course, and everything. So that uh, what I did uh, for that those sabbatical semesters was to go to live in Cambridge, get a room with the Jesuits who were studying theology there, and make use of the libraries mm -hmm. and get some things written. That's how I guess yeah. I use my sabbaticals. I'm, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> when you were saying what are the rights of, uh, of uh, professors, I was thinking to myself, anyway, there are a lot of places where people are asking them to. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> so anyway, so that's how uh, I got some things written. Mm -hmm. And I did all my writing in English, of course, but once they said we didn't have to teach in Latin anymore. Yeah. So I have several books published, that, and I'm actually a couple of them I'm still getting royalties on. Oh, yeah. They're still selling. I can imagine uh, Creative Fidelity is probably still selling, and yeah, the Magisterium. Book, magisterium. Still yeah. Yeah, they're selling. So. Uh, <laughs> you give you give hope to all of us who are trying to write books. <laughs> So when you retired from the Gregorian and, and, and came to Boston College, what was the... Well, retirement at the Gregorian was pretty much your choice between staying on until 75 if you wished or leaving at 70 if you wished. Mm -hmm. They gave you a choice. And I figured if I left and came home at 70, I could probably still get a job. At, in fact, I had almost been requested if I left there at 70 to come back and teach in Cambridge, the Jesuit School of Theology in Cambridge, mm -hmm. because the dean there had known that I was going to retire eventually, and he said, when you retire, he said, hey, I would like you to come and teach here for a couple of more years, if you wish. Mm -hmm. So when I left Rome, I thought I probably would be, uh, go on and teach for at least some more years. I was only 70, you know, and I still had my health at that time. Sure, yeah. I thought I could teach her for a while at, uh, at the dean, at, but, but when I got back there, naturally I first, my first stop was to go over to, to the dean's office at, uh, at uh, Weston, Cambridge, and lo and behold, it was no longer the same dean. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, I said, I thought, he made arrangements that he thought I would, the dean, the previous dean. Mm -hmm. But evidently he hadn't left any word to that effect. <laughs> Oops. So I, I said, well, that's okay. There's still Boston College. Mm -hmm. Boston College has a the graduate program in theology. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, I called. I have a friend here at BC, and I called him up and I said, I, I thought I might be hired to teach in, in uh, School of Theology in Western, in Cambridge, but they don't need me. So I think I'll try Boston College, and maybe you could make an appointment for me with the dean of the graduate school, which he did. So we went over to BC and went to the dean of the graduate school and told him, you know, who I was and what I'd been doing. And he said, and you're willing to teach for us? And I said, yeah. He said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the easiest interview you ever had, yeah. huh? <laughs> so I taught at BC then for, I don't know, about 10 years, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and then finally decided it was time to quit. So I came out here. Yeah. But that's my story. Do you, teaching. Yeah. Do, do you miss teaching? Do you miss being in the classroom? No, I'm happy. I mean, I think I don't want to go back to it. I mean, no, fair I, enough. When I got to that point, I, I was ready to, to retire. Mm -hmm. But I'd been teaching a long time. And uh, for a while, I was teaching something where I was already out here. I think it was because I, I was still at Boston College, but I began to feel kind of uh, unsteady on my feet. Mm. And the rector out there said, why don't you go out and live at Weston? You'd be safer out there. They can look after you. Mm -hmm. But I said, well, I'm, I've already signed up to give a course here. He said, well, when I said, it's a one, one afternoon a week, just one afternoon a week. He said, well, maybe you could arrange to have somebody drive you in. So I did it from here. <laughs> I continued, finished a course that I had sure. already was doing. And then from that point on, I just stayed here. Okay. So that's pretty much my, the, the end of my teaching career was when I finished a um, one week, one afternoon a week course <laughs> from here. Mm -hmm. Was it, how, how would you maybe characterize the differences between teaching at the Gregorian, especially, I mean, even in the, you know, the later, the 70s, the 80s in the Gregorian, and teaching at, at BC? I know, I mean, the Gregorian, you're primarily... Well, you see, I've uh, never taught undergraduates. Okay. I, I really have never taught undergraduates, so I don't know what it would be like for me to teach at BC, because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Basically, you teach the undergraduates. You might, you know, you might do both, but... I have really never taught, the only teaching I've done is freshman high school, <laughs> <laughs> and which was a problem when they first announced what I was to, supposed to teach, because when I got the, when I got the assignment, I told you I've spent uh, two years teaching down at Bridgeport, I think. Mm -hmm. When I got the assignment, fortunately it was early at the beginning of the summer, when I got the assignment, what I was, what I was going to teach. And actually, they told me that, to my amazement, I was going to be teaching not only things I knew like Latin and algebra, no, Latin and uh, English, mm -hmm. but I was also to teach algebra. <laughs> and algebra was an unknown quantity by that time. <laughs> I mean, forgotten, a totally forgotten quantity. <laughs> it was not your strong suit. We had no math mathematics in our course. <laughs> it's, no. not, it's not part of Jesuit formation? No. All the okay. Unless you're a specialist, unless you choose it. But I just took everything that was normal, and there was no normal course of any kind of mathematics mm -hmm. in, the, in the course that I took way back then. You know, mm -hmm. may be different now. <laughs> it's very different now, I'm sure. It is. But in any case, most people who enter the order now have all kinds of education behind them. Yeah. Very different. I entered from high school. Yeah, how old were you when you entered? 16. I, fin I finished high school at 16, which, uh, which, <laughs> which was not really a double promotion in the, in the normal <laughs> sense. But we moved. We, I, I did my f first half of my first grade in a school in Dorchester, public school. And then we moved in, in the Christmas vacation. And so they put me into the first grade in the grammar school in West mm -hmm. Roxbury. And, uh, uh, the first grade teacher, of, after a couple of weeks, told the provincial, the pr principal, who was the sixth grade teacher, I think, that this child who has come into my course after Christmas for first grade 
seems to know everything. She he comes from another school that they must have gone the whole of what I'm going to do uh, in their first semester. <laughs> <laughs> so this child will be bored for the rest of the year. <laughs> so they put the, the solution to that problem was to put me into second grade, the middle of second grade. Mm -hmm. so, you know, <laughs> but that's what they did. <laughs> so you, so you've been a Jesuit almost eighty years. That... No, sixty-seven. No, I should say, seventy-seven. Okay. Yeah, I've been a priest for sixty years. Okay. A Jesuit for seventy-seven by now. I mean, how how would you? I don't even know how to ask this question, but how would you, I guess, characterize the the role of, you know, Ignatian spirituality in your life? It's, it's been such a. I, I imagine it's been a big part of your life for so long that you you yeah. can't think of it in another oh, way. Yeah. No, um, it's, it's our life. I mean, our spirituality is based on the spiritual exercises mm -hmm. of St. Ignatius. In fact, we, the first thing we do when we enter the novitiate, we enter usually in the summertime, and then the 1st of October, usually, we begin a 30-day Ignatian retreat. Mm -hmm. The silent the one. Yeah. Spiritual exercise for 30 days, and uh, silence, of course. And that's our first uh, initiation to it. We may have done something of it, you know, in high school, in Jesuit high school, but mm -hmm. nothing like a 30-day retreat. So that's our first initiation to Jesuit spirituality, really. Then the whole two-year novitiate is based on that. Mm -hmm. Then every year after that, we make an eight-day Jesuit retreat, mm -hmm. Ignatian retreat, on the, based on the spiritual exercise. So that's very much our spirituality, no question. Do you, do you continue to do the eight-day retreat Oh yes, yeah. it's it's a part of our life to do a, an eight-day retreat now every year. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, we do a second, thirty-day retreat. I mentioned what we call tertianship. After we finish theology, at some point after we finish theology, we are required to do what you call a another year of spiritual uh, sort of exercise, including a thirty-day retreat. Mm -hmm. That's called tertianship. It's the third probation they call. It which gives it the name Tertius. So I did that after I finished theology here and did a year of uh, Tertianship down in Connecticut. We had a house down there then for that purpose. That was before going to Rome for studies. Then. Mm -hmm. You know, the Ignatian exercises. And then of course, uh, many uh, I myself and many others have, in the course of along the years, uh, kind of learned how to give the exercises to other people. Mm -hmm. So, as a matter of fact, when I was teaching in Rome, we had the whole summer off. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do for three months, really. Good three months, good all that. So that uh, in those summers, a good many of those summers, I had found that good, a good thing to do to take up some of the time, because I didn't need all that time <laughs> for vacation. I would save a month for vacation and the other part of the summer, which was another month at least, I would be available for somebody for any, uh, to give a retreat. Mm. And I got to be known as someone who was available, and so I began getting re requests. Most of them came from either England or Ireland at the time. So I gave a lot of retreats, mostly to religious men and women, mm -hmm. uh, brothers and priests and, and uh, sisters in England and Ireland while I was still teaching, it was the summers. 
as part of my summer. But I also saved a good month to come back home, mm -hmm. back here, for a month, you know, so vacation. Mm -hmm. How did you become involved in the Catholic Charismatic Movement? I know this is something that you oh, did some work with. Actually, that um, did did that come out of doing these retreats? It, it, and it came out. What what happened was, I suppose the first thing was. When I was at the Gregorian as a professor, I got a telephone call from some secretary at what they call popularly the Holy Office, mm -hmm. which is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. <laughs> and uh, when, usually, when you get that phone call, is it nerve-wracking? Usually it's such a phone call that I shouldn't <laughs> But this, this one was uh, uh, something to the effect that, uh, Father Sullivan, you are uh, from the United States, are you not? I said, yes. They said, uh, we're, we, we're hearing people here, uh, the word is coming to us, strange things, about Catholic Pentecostals. Hmm. And they said, we know what Pentecostals are. We know they're Protestant, and we've had trouble with them here in Italy. But uh, what are Catholic Pentecostals? We don't know. <laughs> and they, they, they said, do you know anything about that? Well, I thought I said, I've heard, I'd heard of it, but I don't know much. Well... Would you like to come over and we'll talk about it? So I went over and they said, uh, would there be any chance you'd be able to uh, inform us about this thing? And I said, well, I am scheduled to go back. I will be going back to the United States for a, for a semester, I guess. Yeah. And I could spend some time looking into it for you. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, I, I, that was a sabbatical semester that I already I now had a commission from a congregation <laughs> to inform them about Catholic Pentecostals. Mm -hmm. So that's what I spent part of my sabbatical doing. Mm -hmm. Came back with a report for them, turned it in, of course, and they seemed satisfied with it. So that I got to know something about them. And then, and that, that through that, and then when I was teaching the following semester, in Rome, after my class, one of my students came up and he said, evidently in that lecture, I didn't talk about charismatic renewal or Pentecostal movement. I must have said something about the Pentecostals mm. as, a, as a sect, you know, as a group of Christians. I know how it came up. But anyway, it, it, it alerted my, one of my students to come up after class and he said he was interested that I had mentioned Pentecostals in my class. And he asked me if I was aware of the fact that there was now actually in Rome a group of these Catholic Pentecostals mm. in Rome. And I said, oh, I hadn't heard that. And he said, uh, yes, he said, and a matter of fact, I'm a, he said, I'm a member of this group that we get together, we pray together on Sundays for about an hour. And uh, he said, and, and actually, we get a, there's at least one priest comes to teach to pray with us, and and he's a Jesuit. And I said, who is that? He said he teaches at the Biblicum, which is our biblical institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and he gave me his, his name. Uh, and I said to myself, well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So naturally, I called him up, and I said, uh, I didn't put it this way, but equivalently was. What is this I hear about you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, 
Somebody told me that there's a prayer group of the Catholic uh, Pentecostals or Catholic Charismatic Renewal going on here in Rome, and then you take part in it. And I'm interested, can you tell me about that? Oh, he said, oh yeah, he said, I, I was in a, a, giving a course last summer out in, in uh, San Francisco, and I was invited to this group, prayer group, that uh, evidently was part of this movement. And he said, I liked, I liked the way they prayed out there. And uh, then when I was back here in Rome, uh, evidently they, they sent word back to somebody here that they should invite me to their group, which I didn't know about before that. So he said, I've been praying with this group. And uh, he said, I, I like the way they pray. I find it uh, prayerful and so on. Helpful. So he said, uh, and I go to these meetings every Sunday afternoon or something. And then he said, would you like to come with me? I'll take you with me. Mm. <laughs> That's how I got into it. <laughs> Invited by a Jesuit biblical scholar. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, you continued to be involved with them for, while you were, well, I was, well, actually, as long as you were in Rome, yeah, right? While I was in Rome, I was very, very much involved because as it turned out, after I, be, I kept going to the meeting with this Jesuit biblical scholar, Eventually, they would. They were meeting at, first of all, when he brought me into the meeting, in a place that's really part of a convent. Mm -hmm. And uh, after we'd been meeting there, after I'd been meeting there with them for a while, the nun and the sister in charge said that we'd have to find another place because they were going to move out of that particular place. And so, uh, naturally, the group simply was talking about where could we meet that would be. Uh, very convenient place, and without really thinking much about the future, that might have been what it might mean for the future, I said, well, I don't know, there's certainly room at the Gregorian on Sunday afternoon. I mean, <laughs> place is empty. <laughs> so, uh, oh, they said, well, that'd be great. Do you think you could arrange to have, a, have us meet? At that time, it was a small group, maybe 25, 30 people. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll, I don't know. I'd have to ask the rector. So I went and told the rector about him. And I, and I suggested where I thought we might meet, which was one of our buildings, not the main building, but building off to the side there. And uh, because there was a chapel up there that I thought we could use. And uh, I told him what I had in mind and what kind of a group it was and so on, just pray together. And he said, all right, I don't see why you can't bring people in there to want to pray. But he said, uh, that building, of course, doesn't have any uh, porter to guard the door in. It's usually locked on Sundays. So if you bring uh, people in, uh, you'd have to be there to let them in and make sure the door is locked mm -hmm. once they're all in and let them out again. I said, well, I could do that. But it did tie me down. <laughs> it guaranteed my perseverance <laughs> because I don't honestly know whether to what extent I would have persevered if, if I hadn't been tied mm -hmm. down to it yeah. I, don't, I don't know I just huh. don't know now but the fact is I was tied to it because I had to let them in and see to it that the door was locked in. so then I realized that, uh, that, that, well, that, that, that just was for a few months for the rest of that year. 
And I said, now I'm going away for the summer. And uh, those who were meeting, I said, you can't meet here. I can't judge you, I'm not going to be here. Well, they found another place to go for the summer. And lo and behold, the group expanded, mm -hmm. doubled at least from what it had been. So when I came back in the fall, they met me, you know, they came to see me, and they said, uh, the group has grown all of a sudden during the summer, <laughs> and we, we, we need a bigger place than the chapel you we, we, we were using. But <laughs> uh, I said, well, well, actually in that building, there's a whole empty space that isn't used for anything. <laughs> and I don't see why we can't use that, actually. It's, it's plenty big enough for the whole group, plenty good. Quite a very large building. It was it was a space that just wasn't being used. Mm -hmm. on the, on the, you go in and go downstairs rather than up. Mm -hmm. It's a lower level, quite big space down there. All paved, you know, all uh, floored and everything. But I think it had been open to the sky originally when that building was built. But the way we redid the building when we bought it, we bought it and re renovated. Mm -hmm. Sure. We put a roof over it, of course. But there was still this great big space below which they uh, floored, you know, they put a floor in it. And it wasn't being used for anything. So I got okay to use that. So that, and with the large group, it, it was perfect because no, no matter how large the group got to be, there was plenty of semester room. <laughs> so I became the host of the um, Sunday meetings of the Charismatic Renewal uh, prayer group in Rome, English speaking, and out of that grew some other groups of Italian and French groups mm -hmm. that uh, somehow hmm. spun off from it. But it was the English-speaking group of the Charismatic Renewal in Rome, as long as I was there anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's still going on, but they can't meet, the, they can't meet there anymore. Yeah, there's yeah. No, there's nobody at Don't the Greg. Don't want them in, yeah. Nobody at the Greg who would have taken over. Mm -hmm. But they knew it, they, they'd meet somewhere else. Yeah. That's wonderful. I have I have two more questions before we start to wrap up. Sure. One is, what do you think made you a good teacher when you were teaching? Well, all I can say is that, well, I can I can put it this way, that uh, I got to know that my students, American students, because I should say the kind of students I was teaching at the Gregorian were a very international mm -hmm. group of students. They come from all over the world. Yeah. And they live in what are called colleges, which are residences. Mm -hmm. And in Rome, within the you know, the vicinity of Rome, in Rome and mostly in the vicinity, there are as many as 40 national colleges, mm -hmm. residences for students coming to Rome to study, and most of them studying at the Gregorian. Mm -hmm. And uh, among those colleges, you have the... Uh, the uh, English College and the Scots Colleges and the Canadian, almost. The North American College is one of the major mm -hmm. colleges. It's really, should be called the College of the United States. It's not North American <laughs> because Canadians have their own place. Okay. But we, uh, we call it the North American, it's just the United States. But so a good group of my students, naturally, would be coming to the Gregorian for their classes from this college, living there but during their courses at the Greg. What I was getting around to saying with my teaching is that I came to know that my North American college, the, the American kids, students, invented a nickname 
<laughs> and my nickname was Arizona. Arizona. Yes. Okay. Which is, uh, which they explained to me that I was clear and dry. <laughs> but as far as my teaching, as far as my teaching goes, I think I do have a gift for clarity. Okay. I really think I do. Yeah. Because both my teaching and my writing, people do comment on my clarity. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I've heard the most about you from other people is, well, is, is that's, that. That's what I think would be my quality as a teacher, that I, uh, I can make myself clear. Mm -hmm. All right. And then uh, one last question before the final questionnaire. Are you, are you still writing? Are you still researching? Is there anything in particular you're working on? Or? I have, since I've been here, which is now about 10 years or so, since I've been here, I did manage to pr produce and get published in theological studies. You may know as mm -hmm. a, you know, really a scholarly uh, avenue for publishing yeah. in the United States. I mean, that's, that's the real target for a you lot know, of people. Just the, you know, theological studies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, since I've been here, actually, on re in retirement, I did, did get three, I think, or maybe four articles published in theological studies. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the mental energy to start another one. Okay. <laughs> I really right. don't. I just don't have the... I can't think... I, and, and I can't think of a topic I, that, I, that I could develop but I don't think I have the energy to do it anyway. Okay. You know, I'm getting old. <laughs> so, uh, so that's uh, what I, uh, what I feel about my pr production now is that I, I don't really have the energy to try to produce anything like that. But in the, in our catalog, they do have Mavi listed when I came out here ten or twelve years ago now as a writer. Mm -hmm. That was the, which I did. I did, you know. Yeah. I did get three or four articles written and published by theological studies while I, after I got out here. Mm -hmm. But I don't have any more of that. But I did offer to. We do have a system here. Well, a custom, a custom of having somebody either in the in the community or someone from outside invited to give a lecture about once a month. Mm to the community, you know, that people want to listen. And so I told the man in charge of that, that uh, I had something I could give a lecture about. So I am scheduled to give a lecture to the community. And the date he gave me was sometime in April. Okay. What are you going to lecture on? On the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, encyclical of Pope Francis on the environment. Mm -hmm. And not so much on the content of it, mm -hmm. but on the fact that in in d developing that encyclical on the environment, Pope Francis first looked and asked himself, evidently, I mean, I don't know, but he would have done something like this, or he came to know anyway, because he made himself interested in answering the question for himself. What have the bishops of the, of the church been saying yeah. about this question. See what I mean? Yeah, it's all, words, of, all the he footnotes. He first looked to the bishops. Yeah. He didn't look to previous popes. 
-hmm. He looked to what the bishops had been saying. Mm -hmm. and, and he based his encyclical very largely, uh, very largely on what the bishops have already been saying and what I can do with what they've said. Mm -hmm. And that's the way he built his encyclical. Yeah. So that I'm going, simply going to develop that fact. This is how Pope Francis wrote his encyclical on the environment by listening to what the bishops have already been saying on it mm -hmm. and then developing his own take on it put, yeah. it, put it together. That's how it's built. Yeah, I mean, you, you read the footnotes of that encyclical and I mean, a huge proportion of them are the, the National Bishops' Conference of, of, of this country or that of country or, or what whatnot. So I'm going to make that clear that he, he listened to the bishops, what the bishops were saying in their Episcopal conferences. But of course, the documents, and then of course that meant that they would prepare documents, but the conferences would direct their conference documents to their own country. Mm -hmm. An Episcopal conference is a national conference. Mm -hmm. So it was really intended to teach and enlighten the people of their own nation about this problem. Yeah. You see, and maybe uh, see what they should be think of, they should be doing. But the uh, the fact that Pope Francis then picked up what they were saying mm -hmm. and put it into his encyclical, that meant that now what the bishop was saying is going to the whole universal church. Mm -hmm. See, he is making their voice heard. Yeah throughout the whole university church. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a very particular exercise of collegiality. Yeah. yeah. So he, he he listens to them, but he wants their voice to be heard to the whole church. Mm -hmm. So that's what he does with his encyclical. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's wonderful. That's my, my that's lecture. A wonderful insight. Very good. <laughs> As we start to wrap up here, uh, I'd mentioned to you earlier I have sort of five less serious questions. Uh, that I'm, I'm curious what your take on them will be. So the, the first one is you, you spend, I think, about 40 or so years living in Rome. Yeah. I'm wondering, was there a favorite meal or a favorite restaurant uh, that you had in Rome or, or something that you were always very excited to eat while you were there? Well, actually, I really like the way the Romans do the pasta, do pasta. Mm -hmm. That's my, my favorite. Dish. <laughs> There's nothing quite like that here. But it, you know, the, there's such a variety in the way they can make pasta edible and uh, attractive. Mm -hmm. you know. A second question: What is your favorite name from the Bible? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very very safe answer. <laughs> favorite name from, from the Bible? <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose at my age I might think of Methuselah. <laughs> Is, is, is that as a, as a goal or as a warning? Or? Not, not, not my favorite name, no. But, uh, but I suppose I could think of that. <laughs> a third question. Of what group or, or, what, or what would you be, uh, would you be the patron saint? If you were going to be the patron saint of something. <laughs> well, I suppose I'd like to be a patron saint of teachers, but is there any such patron saint of teachers? I imagine there must be. I, must be, but I don't know what is. Yeah. I don't know what is. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, I won't stop you from taking that. I, <laughs> it's a great one to pick. <laughs> Not that I've ever can have the privilege, I'm sure, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's a it's an aspirational question in a certain sense. <laughs> what, if any, would be a, a favorite or a least favorite liturgical song, church song, hymn? Liturgical a song that is usually sung in church. Mm-hmm. I think song that is sung in church. I mean, I won't ask you to sing it unless you really want to, but. I don't think I really have a favorite, either, either favorite or non-favorite, Un, unliked, like or like, they don't stand out in my memory. All right. Totally fair. Totally fair. Last question. You being one of the, the great and influential ecclesiologists of the last 50, 60 years, if the next ecumenical council were to be held anywhere besides the Vatican, so not Vatican III or anything like that, but if it were going to be held anywhere else, where would you like to see it be held? <laughs> well, now I just don't know where that would be. <laughs> where that should be done. Because to have a, an ecumenical council, you have to think of all sorts of things. Like when they, when they chose Trent, <laughs> there just weren't enough places to live. <laughs> <laughs> That yeah, I, don't know. I can't. I honestly can't think of any place better than Rome for a mm-hmm. medical council. I mean, you got to have the place for all the bishops to stay, and you know, you've got to have. Uh, you've certainly got to have a, a you know big airport to, to handle the accommodation and travel. And no. no, I think it works out well to have it there. All right. And uh, so, so you wouldn't push forward your your hometown of Boston as the the, <laughs> the next site. <laughs> No, they couldn't even get an Olympic. (laughs) (laughs) That's an excellent, excellent point. (laughs) Well, Father Sullivan, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Very welcome. Very welcome indeed. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 